Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. This week, our guest teacher, Carolyn Denny, is giving us the whole story behind another parable. We hope you enjoy the podcast. We're going to continue in the parable uh, series that he has started and Luke has contributed. And so today, I thought we would go to Luke 12. So if you have a Bible, if you could open it or if you use your phone, I use my phone actually, because then when I take notes, I can search them later. Um, but you, if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, you can just Google it and it'll come up on Bible Gateway or Bible Hub. Um, so we're gonna be looking at Luke 12. And we're gonna basically walk through it in three parts. We're gonna start with the context, what's going on in Luke, in Luke 12. Then we're gonna go to the event that triggers Jesus' three-point response. Okay, so we'll start with the context, then the event, and then Jesus' response in three parts. Uh, So starting with the context, what is going on in Luke? If you are not familiar with the Gospel of Luke, it tells us the story of Jesus Christ's time here on earth, like the other three Gospels. And there are 10 chapters in the middle of it, from chapters 9 to 19, where Jesus is gradually journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem. Um, It's a very important journey, and he does a lot of teaching along the way. And so we have lots of different uh, parables and didactic sermons where he is just teaching all the way through, from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. So chapter 12 is right in the middle of that. And we find out right at the beginning who is listening to all of this teaching that he's doing, and particularly in this section in chapter 12. Can anybody see, if you have your Bible open in chapter 12, right at the beginning, who are some of the folks that are listening? Pharisees. The Pharisees. And are they listening happily and with open hearts? (laughs) Can Can you see what it says about them? Would you mind reading that? Uh, it's right at the end of 11, I think. 53 to 54. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, you have to scroll back. <laughs> uh, and he went away from there. The scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So that's pretty clear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so they're kind of stalking Jesus and setting traps all along the way, trying to figure out how to make sure that by the time he gets to Jerusalem, they have all the ammunition that they need. Who else is listening? Disciples. The disciples, yes. And it actually says, if you notice at the beginning of 12, that he speaks <coughs> first to the disciples. And we see that a lot, right? I mean, these are his close people, he knows the assignment they're gonna have after everything goes down in Jerusalem. (laughs) And so he is preparing them, he is speaking to them, he is keeping them there. And as we've talked about, Lee Eric has brought up with the parables, there's usually a twofold meaning. There's the meaning that is kind of clear to everybody, to the, you know, hopefully to the Pharisees, but certainly to the crowds. And then there's usually a a more um, veiled meaning, because Jesus actually says when he tells the parables that in part, it was in order to give them information that others would not understand. Okay, so the disciples, he's speaking first to them and giving them extra insight that is not always available to the crowd. 
And that's the third group that's listening, right? It says there are thousands. There are so many people that they're like trampling each other in order to try to get close enough to hear him. Okay, so you have kind of the stage set. There's the close group of disciples that are right up front who he's speaking to directly first. Then you have the crowd of thousands who are trying to get in close enough to hear him. And then mixed in with them, you've got the villains, <laughs> the bad guys that are trying to ask questions or catch glimpses. I, I can almost imagine it like a, it's like at a political rally where people pull out their cell phone and try to, to capture the, the bad soundbite of somebody. So that, that's who's listening as we go through chapter 12 and for most of his journey, really. Uh, what is the theme as we get up to the parable that we're going to study? Well, the first three verses of chapter 12, Jesus talks about being where, beware of hypocrisy. That everything that is covered up or that we think is covered up will be revealed. What is whispered in secret will be proclaimed in public. Uh, what's going on in private, whether it's in our hearts or in our homes, matters that putting on a public face just for the you know for other people is not getting away with stuff it's not it's not like we can just kind of get away with sin and avoid the consequences right that what actually is going on inside in secret matters and part of that is because sin is always destructive whether it is known by others or not and part of that is because god sees everything. Which brings us to verses 4 to 7. God's is the only opinion that really matters. So the, the point of hypocrisy is to boost other people's opinion of us. And so we're caring about the wrong folks, right? We're putting up a front for other people when they're not the ones we should be worried about. Uh, we should be worried about what God thinks. So he says, don't fear the people who can only kill you. Fear God, who holds your eternal fate. And don't fear him because he's out to get you. He has numbered the hairs on your head. Fear him because he's the only one who really cares about you eternally and knows you intimately. So then verses 8 to 12, because of that, don't deny him or reject him or ignore him. Follow God in private and in public equally. The inside and the outside matters. And really, God is the one that we should be thinking about. So this is where our heads are at right now, because this is where their heads were at when someone speaks up from the crowd. In verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What do you notice about the person who speaks up and what they say? demanding. It is. I was tempted when I was first going through this, I actually wrote out the questioner. And then I realized, is he asking a question? <laughs> no, he's not even trying <laughs> to get information from Jesus. He is demanding. It's a command. You tell my brother to do this. Yes, absolutely. Um, it actually reminds me of the, if you have heard of the parable, I don't remember if we've covered in this this here yet, but I know Scott has talked about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man winds up in hell and he looks up to Abraham in heaven. And instead of asking questions or, 
you know, pleading his case or humbling himself, he starts commanding Abraham, demanding that Abraham send a servant down to bring him water and send somebody to tell, you know, like, so you see in both cases, this air of pride and entitlement that has no interest in listening to the person they're discussing. In fact, who that person is, is almost irrelevant, right? They're just a tool, a means to an end to get what they want. So they're used to demanding what they want. Yeah, so what else do we know about this person or what they're saying? Yeah. He must not be the firstborn. Yes, yes. Or he would have got all the inheritance anyway. Yes, so in the Old Testament law, the inheritance would naturally pass to the firstborn and then he would divide it. And generally the firstborn would get two thirds and then the other children would divide up the other third. And the idea was that as um, an agricultural society, you wanted to keep the land together. You wanted to keep the estate together. And so if you were constantly dividing it in equal parts, it would be splintered into tiny pieces. So they were trying to keep the land together to support the whole family. So yeah, so it's probably a younger brother who's saying, where's my part? <laughs> the, other, the older brother hasn't distributed it out to his liking. Okay, anything else? Does this flow pretty well from what we've just been seeing the theme is of verses 1 to 12 about not being a hypocrite and honoring God and fearing him more than man? No, it's a total non sequitur, right? Jesus is talking about one thing and the guy speaks up and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, if you, somebody raised their hand right now and said that, we'd be like, what? <laughs> Have you not been listening? No, clearly he has not been listening. He is so focused and obsessed on what he wants and getting that, that there's no room for listening to somebody else. Okay, he's not, he doesn't care what Jesus has been talking about. Is he doing this in like a private, discretionary kind of way, approaching somebody that's a wise teacher carefully? Who's there? Everybody, right? I mean, the entire village and probably multiple villages have shown up in order to hear Jesus speak. And this guy is airing their dirty laundry in front of all of them. So yeah, he's definitely not going about this in a scriptural way. Whether you go to Old Testament or New Testament, you don't start by making demands in public in front of everybody. Um, and he's probably part of the crowd from what we can tell. He speaks up from the crowd. He's not one of the disciples. It's possible he could be a Pharisee, we don't know, but most likely he's just a member of the crowd, of the people that have come out in order to see Jesus. So why do you think he asks Jesus at all? Why is he bothering to do this? Sounds like he's trying to trap him because the Jewish, like you were saying, the Jewish custom is to honor the father to honor the family and everything's kept in a way that the family wouldn't be disgraced so to do this is very counterintuitive to the culture so it sounds more like he's trying to catch it sounds more like a trap yeah absolutely i think it definitely Maybe could be since it's jesus's authority like that mm. you're such a crowd that, that even if he's not like following along with what Jesus said, like, he yeah. senses there's some kind of authority with Jesus. Yeah, that's good. 
Do you think he's looking for justice? It's a tricky question because like Lucy pointed out, he has on face value, he could probably claim he is because the older brother is supposed to distribute part of the inheritance, okay? So he would probably say that he's looking for justice, but he is not actually presenting the case for a decision from Jesus, right? He is not, um, he is actually demanding specific action. He's not looking for a trial. He is the judge and jury, and he's already reached the verdict, and now he just wants somebody else to enforce it. Is he desperate? And this can also be a little tricky because we don't know that much about him, but based on where we're gonna go and what we're gonna learn from the parable, he's probably not destitute. Okay, we're gonna see his doppelganger in the parable is already doing okay. <laughs> okay, this is not somebody who is starving. Uh, we also don't see any resemblance to like the bleeding woman who just wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' robe, or the centurion who believed that just a word from Jesus would be enough to heal. Plus, like I said, we'll see from Jesus' answer that he's probably already got some land or something to live off of. So what, what does he want? If he's not presenting the case, if he's not desperate, I think somebody mentioned greed. And I think there is, certainly we'll see from the parable, a case for saying that he just wants more. He wants more. He wants more possessions, more money, more land. It's not enough, whatever he has for him. Certainly wants part of his inheritance. And this actually always makes me think of Sally Brown in Charlie Brown's Christmas, where she says, all I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. <laughs> And it rings true because we hear that and we probably say that a fair amount. I hear it on a daily basis in my home from my little people who happen to be brothers. <laughs> um, all I want is my fair share. But I think there's also another thing going on here and that is publicly shaming his brother. I would be surprised if there's not a certain amount of vengeance going on here. The way he says it implies his brother is probably there because he's saying, Jesus, I can imagine him pointing, tell my brother to give me part of my inheritance. So I think he wants to air this in front of everybody. And we'll get into the cost involved in that decision. But he is so obsessed and so focused on getting more, on getting his share, on his entitlement and on his bitterness toward his brother for not giving it to him, that he is willing to put his brother under the bus. And along with it, his family, his relationships. Do you have something? Could he be trying to shame him into doing it? Certainly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so let's go on to Jesus' three-part answer. We've done the context, the event that triggers it. Yeah, William, please. Just. Uh like we're kind of attacking this guy, but I just, it strikes me that I pray this way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Give me this. Make this person do this. I want, you know, this to happen. I want this to succeed. I want, you know, you pray like this. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that some more in a second, but I'm glad you brought it up here because it's true of both the real man 
and his fictional counterpart. This is, this is the plan. God, now just implement it. <laughs> I don't need your input. I don't need your wisdom. I just want you to do it. Okay, so let's look at uh, verses 14 to 21. Actually, I think it would be best if somebody could read it. Is there anybody willing to read verses 14 to 21? That'd be great. Thanks, Ken. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbit arbitrator over you, he then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do, since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Thank you. Okay, so that's the big picture of where we're going. Let's go back to verse 14, where Jesus' first answer is, who made me a judge over you? And I think that this is sort of twofold, as often he has, you know, multiple things going on in what he says. First, why aren't you asking the judges or your own rabbi who are set up in your community to handle stuff just like this? Because they actually had that. Okay, this was, there was enough structure in their community. The Old Testament set up um, avenues for them to present cases to judges. Sometimes it would be to their own rabbi in order to get help in handling family disputes. Okay, so first he's saying, why would you come to me? Like, I don't, I am not the proper avenue for you to, to explore this. Which implies, I mean, it makes us think that probably has been done and he didn't like the answer. Okay, and there are lots of different possible explanations. We're not going to speculate, but there are lots of reasons why he might not have liked the result of going through the proper channels. Um, but then there's this second aspect of, okay, so you are coming to me. Why would you come to me? And this is where I think the authority we see that, that maybe he recognizes, not just that maybe public shaming will work, but it's like Jesus is saying, okay, if you believe that God has made me the judge, should you really be making demands of me? Like if you sense some authority from God, why would you be telling me what to do? Like, shouldn't you be listening or asking questions? So there are lots of reasons why this command from this guy is inappropriate um, and foolish, as we'll see. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The second part of his answer is take care, be on your guard against covetousness in verse 15. And really, this guy's demand is the definition of covetousness. <laughs> I want what my brother has. Okay, and he has just stated it outright. But it's interesting that Jesus says in two different ways a warning. Take care and be on your guard. Okay, he's not just saying you're covetous. He's like, watch out, watch out. <laughs> Beware. Because there is danger here. 
There is danger in being covetous, and there is danger in thinking that life is all about your possessions and what you have accumulated. And he knows that we as humans need that warning desperately because this is our default, selfishness and materialism. I mean, we're not usually accidentally sacrificial (laughs) and generous and content. Like that's not something that we just, oops, fell into. (laughs) We have to work really hard to go against the sin nature. And so if that is our natural bent, why do we have to fight it? What's the problem with being covetous or materialistic? Why is that so dangerous? I know this may sound obvious, but I actually want to hear, why do you think that's such a problem? Because you're not content with the status that the Lord has placed you in. Okay. Yeah. Not acknowledging God's sovereignty in your situation. This is something. Yes. Like uh, in the wilderness, when people were taking more man than they needed to, you're not depending on God's provision. You're the having more than you need um, makes you feel as though you don't need anything else. Ah. It reveals a very limited view of God and eternity. Yeah. Uh, where you get all wrapped up in worldly, not meaning in a negative way, but life itself. And it's like a cloud cover that blocks out the real truth. Yeah. Yeah. Like she said, the deceptive quality. I like that picture of the more we're focused on that desire for our brother's stuff, for material things, for control and security, the more that becomes a cloud cover blocking our view of the truth. Yeah. Really. Already see the resentment and anger in the brother, which leads to bitterness and other other sin. Just yeah. because of what he wants, he can't have, and so he has all of these other things, which leads to yes, yes. Sin doesn't reveal its full cost. Right? It starts with one thing, yeah. I'll, I'll you know, always hesitate to speak. Yeah, I'd be very careful. So, so this reminds me of, of, of um, Descartes. So when he was writing his meditations and sort of trying to start from nothingness, he realized that his own nature and biases were so strong that he couldn't ever start from like sort of no presuppositions. So he said, let us imagine someone who is actively being false. Let let us pretend that every idea we have has to be countered because I am sinful, essentially. It's the same thing. Like, like, like you can't just say, I'm not going to be sinful. You have to really check yourself. He is Mm -hmm. so, you know, I feel like obsessed and and, and consumed by this idea of not having as much, this this man, Mm -hmm. um, that he can't actually start from a place that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. That he has to say, I, I start evil, mm-hmm. and can I be good? The other thing I notice in this is in the Old Testament, there were rabbis that were mediated between mm-hmm. goods and property. Yeah. But he doesn't want to mediate He yeah. wants to have to So he, he's being, you can see the greed coming in. Yeah. Tell, say right now it's mine. 
Yeah. You know, tell them to split it, and this is the way it should be. So I find that uh, kind of interesting. Not that I really think this guy wanted fairness a lot, but he could. Yeah. Yeah. That was common mediator, but I don't see that in the question. Right. He's not saying, well, how, you know, listen to the case and then he's just saying, give it to me. Right. Right. Yeah. No. I just always heard this whole adage jealousy or greed is a thief of joy. Yeah. Yes. There is a cost to the path that he has pursued. Yeah. I should say, when Mother Teresa visited the U.S., I remember reading that she said of all the countries she administered in, that we were the poorest of any nature, any nation she had seen because we didn't recognize our need for the Lord. We were so self-sufficient. And I think in this parable, his need to be self-sufficient just negates, it just, it's so counterproductive in terms of our relationship with Christ. We can't be self-sufficient. Yeah. You yeah, mm-hmm. asked about materialism, yeah. and you also mentioned how uh, you know they're focusing on the outside rather than on the inside. Well, this is a typical example. So you don't really have peace of mind, and you get more and more stressed out in the long term, and from that you get sicker and diseases and other things that develop. You're just never yeah. satisfied. Yes, yes. And it can start so small that we don't see that path. I mean, this is kind of, yeah, like you're all saying, putting it all together, that the allure of sin is that it's hiding all of these costs. It's hiding where it will grow and lead. It kind of makes me think of when in stories or movies where somebody does a little favor for the mob. Does it ever end there? <laughs> is the mafia ever like, okay, good, we're done, thanks? <laughs> no, and sin is exactly the same way. I mean, if the mob can be like that, you know, getting more and more control and dragging you further and further under, imagine Satan and sin and what they are after. So what has this cost, this guy? I mean, already we know he must not have a very good relationship with his family. And families were key then, right? I mean, this is even the land when it was divided would be all next to each other. So generally, all the relatives and extended family live right next to each other. Okay, they're all in the same community, usually. And so there is a huge breach. And he's just brought it out in, fr- in public, if it wasn't already. The reputation, his own reputation. Do you think everybody around is going to be like, that's such a great guy? <laughs> we really respect him. He's got his priorities straight. So he's throwing that away by bringing this up. His own peace of mind, like you're saying, Do you think if he gets this land, he's suddenly going to be happy, content, uh, admirable, a man of integrity because he finally got that one thing he wanted? And it has stolen his willingness to listen to Jesus, like some of you have said, that he's blinded by that fog of his desire. And so here he is standing face to face with the Son of God, and he doesn't recognize him. He doesn't even think like, oh, maybe I should be drawing on his wisdom. (laughs) Maybe I should be asking him questions instead of telling him what to do. But I mean, this kind of obsession and how it has blinded him and taken over, that's what idols do. If you've been in the church, you've heard us talk about idols. They just represent anything that we value more than God. And that when we have to have an idol, we become a slave to it. And so he has become a slave to this desire 
for this piece of property. And it reminds me of, uh, I was in, we were in the Orlando airport, I guess it was at spring break, and I saw a teenager uh, steal some candy from uh, one of those, you know, just like a what you, Hudson's or whatever, one of those stores. And it was so fast, and I was so surprised, and by the time I thought to say anything, she was gone. And it just really struck me that, like, she had chosen to become a thief for a pack of M&Ms. Like, do you see the cost-benefit analysis here? Doesn't really work out that she felt like it was worth giving up her integrity in order to get that little bit of chocolate that was probably worth, like, a dollar. And yet how often do we face little things like that? I mean, I feel like it comes up all the time in all sorts of little ways where it's tempting. I mean, just this week I was thinking like, well, do I have to sign in every visitor to the pool? Because it's $5 a person. I'm like, $5? (laughs) Am I going to give up my integrity for $5? Or are we going to let the kids bring a bunch of candy in their backpack to the theater. But then what am I teaching them for like, again, like $10 worth of candy? I mean, it's just these little things that I start thinking like, how many ways am I tempted to give in in little tiny ways, not recognizing where it leads, that I'm doing favors for the mob. And it doesn't ever start, stop there. And I don't ever see the costs ahead of time of what we're doing. The irony is that idols demand more, demand perfection, and are never forgiving. Mm. Or God doesn't get that at all and his ultimate. Yeah. We're not very good judges sometimes of the best path, the best person to follow. So take care, is what he's saying. Take care. Be on your guard. Don't insist on playing with fire. You'll get burned. Which finally leads us to the parable. You're probably wondering, when are we going to get there? (laughs) Verses 16 to 21. Okay, so we already heard it read. If you have it, please just look at it and tell me, what do we know about the main character in this parable? Very successful. Yes. He's going to be even more successful shortly. (laughs) He's very successful. He's got a very productive farm. He is already described as rich. He owns a lot of land. Are there any other characters in this parable? It's him, right? He's the only one. He tries to pretend there are others, right? Do you notice this? He starts talking to somebody. Who is he talking to? himself. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to say to my soul, soul, (laughs) as if there's somebody else in the room, but there's not. From a public point of view, he's being very responsible. He's being a good businessman. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get there. Yes, that's a good point. Um, 20% of the words that he speaks are a version of I or my. So that is his complete orientation. Does, verse 17, does he speak the truth to himself? Does he have nowhere to store his crops? Yes, he does. But he's 
overflowed with a surplus and he's not content with what he already has so now the addition in his mind belongs to him it is not added for the benefit of potentially someone else mm -hmm. so he actually does have places to store his crops right let's be clear he has barns he has places that up until now have been sufficient for him he's already rich he's already a successful farmer he already has barns and so he has a place to put his crops he's overstating it okay it's it's a very common you know rationalization to take a little bit of truth and then exaggerate it so he's saying well I don't have anywhere to store my crops <laughs> which is not true what shall I do how many options does he consider? <laughs> Does he go through a nice little decision tree, <clears throat> consult a bunch of people, try to think of, oh, maybe there are some other things I could be doing with this? Uh, it makes me think of, I've been uh, rereading Good to Great. It's been probably 15 years since I had read it before. And one of the, it's a great book if you ever are interested, but one of the things that they talk about through a lot of research and analysis is that one of the hallmarks of leaders that have turned good companies into sustainably great companies is one that they first they got their leadership team in place and then they figured out what the company should do that leaders of similar companies who never made the leap from good to great tended to first decide what the company should do and second bring in the team to do it okay so they're doing the same things, but the order of operations is different. So the vision in the, in the latter case, the lesser leaders, so to speak, um, they have already cast their vision. They've already decided what the solution is going to be, and they're bringing in people. And oh, that decision, the solution they've come up with, is based solely on their own wisdom or insight or blindness or bias, whatever's going on inside them. But it's, it, there's a huge difference, not just in the financial performance of the companies, but in the lives of all the employees and the stockholders who are depending on those companies. Okay, so the question, I mean, the difference between these two different scenarios is, do we ask for advice before we make the decision? Or do we make a decision and then just look to confirm the decision we've already made? Because a lot of times, we think we're asking advice, but we're doing the latter. We've already kind of decided what we want, and we're just looking around for people to confirm it. And we even can probably tell in who we're asking, who we're willing to get advice from, because we kind of know they're going to lean the way that we want to go. We see the latter in the demanding brother who first spoke up, not asking Jesus for input, but for demanding a predetermined verdict. And we see that in this rich landowner, that he's just talking to himself. And neither is really looking for help in their decision-making. Neither is questioning their own judgment. Both are running full speed ahead into a brick wall, <laughs> as we'll see in the parable. So verse 18, what is his solution? Well, it's to tear down 
and build bigger, to store all of my grain and my goods, which are ample for many years. There's no sharing, no moderation, no giving back, no thought of anyone but self. Okay, they are functional atheists because they are never considering God and what he would want them to do. So they might as well be hedonists. In fact, he says outright, then I can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's it. That's his purpose in life. What an anticlimax. That's all this is leading up to, being able to like sit back and drink and eat? Really? Is that what we are working hard towards? Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.32 is talking about, he's making the case for the afterlife, that there is more to life than what we see at the, when we die. Like it's not just death and that's the end, that we are resurrected afterwards, that there is more after that. And so he says, if the dead are not raised, if there's no afterlife, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So Paul is in part arguing for the afterlife, but he says if there isn't one, then the hedonists might as well be right. If death is the end, then we should just be happy and have fun. But it doesn't work. I mean, you see it all over the news, probably in people around you that pursuing self and pleasure and fun and relaxation and food and drink and happiness is a mirage. It doesn't work. That the more we pursue those things as the goal, the more we self-destruct as humans. Look at any number of wealthy, healthy, successful people who have died of drugs or suicide or you name it. It doesn't work because Paul said, if the resurrection is false, then you might as well party away the days. But the resurrection is not false. We do have eternal souls. We are made for more than immediate gratification. And we know it. Somewhere deep down, God has written eternity on our hearts. And we cannot run far enough to silence the voice inside us that tells us that we were made for him and for each other, that we were not made for self. As Jesus said, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So what does it consist of? Right at the end of the parable, being rich toward God. And what does that look like? Well, I wish we had time to keep reading. So that's your homework as you go away, is to read the rest of chapter 12, because he lays it out there in verses 22 to 34. It is not being anxious about providing for ourselves, but following God, obeying God, and trusting that he will provide, that he loves us and knows us and has plans for us that are better than what we could ever have devised. Just this week, a friend was wondering, shouldn't Christians be, like, weirder? <laughs> I mean, like, shouldn't we be more obviously different from the world? And the more we talked about it, the more we realized that our weirdness comes often from our decision-making. Because who would choose to li leave a comfortable life in America for a difficult life serving impoverished citizens in another country? Or who would choose to bring babies and children with physical or mental challenges into their homes to foster or adopt? 
Or who would choose to dive into messy situations that they could otherwise choose to avoid? Who would work to maintain difficult friendships? Who would voluntarily give to people that they've never met who can never benefit them in return? Who would love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them? Certainly not the rich landowner who's too busy building his bigger barns and not the bitter brother who's too busy demanding justice, so full of his own entitlement that he doesn't see the Son of God in front of him. Neither of them is asking for God's input in their decision-making. Neither of them is considering how those things will affect the people around them. Both are underestimating the cost of sin, and both are ignoring what really matters, what Jesus says over and over and over, eternity. This, you know, 80, 90 years we have at best on this earth is a drop in the bucket compared to our life with God. So we've got to have that long view. So what are we supposed to do with this? Do we sell everything? You'll see that as you read further in chapter 12. I want to say no, but what scripture says is sell whatever is keeping you from putting God first. Get rid of it. Matthew 19, 16, the man asked Jesus what he must do to have eternal life. And Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor and come follow me. Because he knew that that man valued his possessions more than God himself. Matthew 5, 29 to 30, if your right out eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's pretty extreme language. And we're not here to tone it down, to make it easy. Instead, let's hear the urgency, <coughs> hear the importance of what Jesus is trying to communicate, that these men we've been talking about are blinded by their own selfishness and materialism so they don't see the long view. Are we? Are we consulting God and his word first before we make key decisions? Are we making decisions like citizens of his kingdom, like his beloved children? for whom he will provide if we'll just follow him. Or if that's confusing, turn it around because he talks a lot in chapter 12 about anxiety. What's keeping us up at night? What has us anxious? What are we not quite ready to trust God with? Because this is not meant to be a burden. The whole point is that we can live lighter and freer and more trusting and more generous, more connected, helping one another and enjoying God forever. That's, the, that's what we're after. That's what he's offering. Not being weighed down by our stuff and our bitterness. Not trying to control our futures, which we ultimately know we can't control, right? No matter how big our barns are. But we're citizens of Christ's kingdom, for whom the best is always yet to come. So we can act like it. We can make decisions like it. We can enjoy that and not be like these men who've forgotten it. Okay, let's pray. I know we're running a little late, sorry about that.
Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.